Tennessee podcast. We have a special program today. I'm Patrick Ryan, president of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. Uh, we're here with uh, Andrew Staunton, who is the Consul General of the United Kingdom uh, in Atlanta, and we'll be talking about U.S.-U.K. relations, economic uh, relations with Tennessee and the United States in general, uh, international issues, and uh, other topics of the day. Welcome, Consul General Staunton. Thanks, Patrick. It's a pleasure to be back. It's not my first time on the podcast. I hope I've attracted some listeners to tune back in for an update. Well, we we haven't looked at the data, but I'm sure it's off the charts. So we'll we'll have another uh, great uh, episode today. Thanks again for joining us. Uh, For our listeners, uh, Andrew Staunton took up his appointment in Atlanta as Her Majesty's Consul General in June 2018. Andrew is the senior UK government representative in the Southeast United States, responsible for relations with the states of Georgia, Tennessee, North Carolina, South Carolina, Mississippi, and Alabama. He leads a team which works to promote US-UK trade and investment, support British nationals, conduct public diplomacy on key issues, and build scientific and research cooperation. Again, uh, welcome, uh, Consul General. We uh, are looking forward to our conversation today. Thanks, Patrick. It's always a pleasure to engage with the World Affairs Council. You do so much to promote a sense of dialogue on the issues that matter, including transatlantic relations. So thank you very much for the work of the World Affairs Council. Thank you for those those kind words. Let's jump right into the uh, U.S.-U.K. relationship. Uh, we've uh, just been through a tumultuous couple of weeks of the uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan, and uh, Americans uh, might not know the significance of the contribution of the NATO alliance uh, to the uh, operations over the last 20 years, including uh, the exceptional service and sacrifice of our, our British comrades in arms. But the, uh, the manner of the withdrawal has uh, led to some criticism of the United States from abroad. Uh, in, in a time when President Biden was seeking to shore up uh, reliance on uh, multilateralism and the connection between the United States and our, our allies, especially our NATO allies. What's uh, the reaction um, in, the, in the UK to, uh, to those developments? Are, are, are people concerned uh, about uh, the United States not necessarily um, being a, a multilateral player anymore? Firstly, Patrick, uh, I think everybody in the world can remember where they were 20 years ago last Saturday. Uh, I was uh, attending a defence sales exhibition in London. At the time, I worked on international aviation for the British government, and we faced a situation where a number of planes had gone rogue and crashed into various buildings, and there was some concern about the safety of passengers travelling the world. So that was my September the 11th, 2001, worrying about how we would get those planes to land safely around the world. I then spent a few weeks working in our emergency unit, supporting the efforts of the British government to work with our allies, such as the United States government, to really uh, start our operations in Afghanistan, to bring peace and stability to a region that hadn't enjoyed that for, for some period. 20 years on, the United Kingdom, as a member of NATO, but also in our own right, have worked very collectively and collaboratively with the US forces on the ground. 
with the U.S. politicians, but also with the people and the politicians of Afghanistan. We've supported a lot of projects. So we've made a large contribution in terms of manpower, in terms of life, in terms of lives lost and lives damaged. Uh, I think sometimes people forget that this was a collaborative effort that involved many uh, soldiers, men and women from many uh, different countries, many diplomats, men and women from many different countries. And the overall objective was to try and take away that threat that terrorists posed to uh, the United States, the United Kingdom and others. It was a hard fight. Resources were used. People's lives were lost. Uh, the commitment had lasted 20 years. And obviously the United Kingdom had been speaking to President Biden and his administration about how we should look to exit after 20 years from Afghanistan in a safe and secure way in that we did as much as possible to protect that legacy. Uh, I'm not an expert on Afghanistan, uh, but I know that people in uh, our government were very seized of the requirement to do this in the best possible way. I think that military analysts in the United States and the United Kingdom, diplomats and politicians, no one expected the situation to unravel quite as quickly as it did with mm -hmm. the Taliban taking uh, control within three days, I think it was. And then the focus obviously then switched to how do we ensure that those British nationals from a UK perspective can get out of Kabul safely. And so we've had a tremendous effort, a crisis effort, to try and get our people out of there. But we're also trying to do as much as we can to support those Afghans, men and women, who've worked with us over a number of years to get them out safely. So the British government's focus is now twofold. It's focusing on helping those people get out of Afghanistan, but it's also focused on ensuring that the international community continues to find a way to hold uh, the Taliban or the successor government in Afghanistan to account. So we're being active across a variety of ways, but one can't talk about disappointment. One can't uh, always have the benefit of hindsight in these things. Decisions were made, plans were put in place, contingencies were uh, implemented. Did they go as, we, as well as we would have all have wished? I think my prime minister has made it clear that we could have done a better job. Our focus must now be on that humanitarian uh, effort and we will remain resolute uh, in ensuring that we can take the necessary governmental measures to support the ordinary people of Afghanistan and all those who've helped us and we're working very closely with the US administration in that regard. Well a couple of months ago uh, President Biden was in the United Kingdom for a NATO conference in Wales and then he met with the Her Majesty mm. the Queen and other members of the government um, to shore up uh, the relationship after a bumpy uh, uh, previous administration. How would uh, you describe for our listeners what the special relationship is between the United States and the United Kingdom and, and what, that, uh, what we have to look forward to uh, in the future in that regard? Well, I think it's a relationship that's close and mutually reinforcing. It's at the center of the international community. I think that uh, while the United Kingdom and United States, or when the United Kingdom and United States are working well together, that really provides a hell of a lot of benefits to that international community. We can act as a convening force for good. We can act as a coordinating force for good. But we can also have leaders that are determined to 
take their place in the world, not always as the leaders of the world, but as those who want to help the world to address its problems. So the G7 meeting that the President Biden attended was part of our G7 presidency, and we saw that as an opportunity to ensure that the international community, the leaders of the G7 countries, were focused on the everyday issues that matter to uh, people around the world. So climate change, for example, was a big part of that conference. And it's clear that President Biden took a number of early steps that the United Kingdom government welcomed. Rejoining the Paris Agreement on climate change was a big thing. And we're building towards the International Climate Change Conference, the so-called COP26, which takes place in Glasgow, which is my home city in Scotland, in the first couple of weeks of November. And that's again that sign that international leaders coming together to take on board and to uh, address international challenges. So special relationship is a term that uh, is used often, but I actually think it's what underpins that relationship. I think it's the fact that in issues such as uh, science and innovation, our people are talking to each other. In issues such as how we combat COVID, the Centre for Disease Control and Prevention, which is based in Atlanta, is speaking to the Public Health England authorities. So we have a natural way of doing business, a natural way of engaging, because we might not always look at the world in exactly the same terms or with the same politics, but sometimes we are trying to get to the same end point. And when I was preparing to come to the United States, I read a, a book by the BBC Washington correspondent John Sopel, which said, the title of which is, if only Americans didn't speak English, we would understand them far better. <laughs> and that's important to me because I think there are differences between us. There are different philosophies. There are different politics. There are different cultural approaches. But I think when you come at it, we may have different values in some areas, but we are two bodies of people that want to be a force for good within the world. So you, when you take one body of people that want to be a force for good and join them with others, that can only be profitable. I'll have to get that book. I, I noticed uh, some differences in my years living in York, especially things like traffic calming. That, uh, that, that definitely wasn't my cup of tea, but uh, I enjoyed my time there immensely. Uh, thank you for the, the correction on the meeting in Wales. It was the G7 followed by the NATO in mm -hmm. Brussels uh, uh, shortly thereafter. Let's uh, turn to Tennessee. Your, your portfolio includes uh, the state of Tennessee mm -hmm. and much of the South. Um, uh, what is happening U.S. or Tennessee, British economic relations? Are there any developments since we last talked or uh, had the opportunity to hear you speak uh, to our groups here? Lots of developments. Uh, I think it would be fair to say that uh, whenever I visit Tennessee, whenever I visit Nashville, I'm struck by the vibrancy, that sense of development. I'm struck by the fact that uh, Nashville and other parts, you know, Memphis is doing, FedEx are doing great things with their logistics operation there at the moment, their freight operations. But uh, Nashville is a city that's doing really well in fintech. Uh, it's doing really well in financial services. It's doing really well in advanced manufacturing. And all you can do is be impressed by that sense of vitality. I've always been a big believer that, uh, and since I've been in the United States, there is so much commonality between what's happening in the United Kingdom and what's happening in the United States, particularly in the Southeast, where cities are becoming drivers of economic growth. You know, so for Nashville, think of Manchester. 
for Atlanta, mm-hmm. think of Leeds, for Charlotte, think of Edinburgh. So cities that are at the same point of their economic journey, where they are the drivers, as I said earlier, of that economic growth, where talent is being attracted to, that are open for business, that are wanting to invest in the technologies of the future. So that's what I'm excited about. Yes, London will always remain that international financial center like New York and one or two other places, that global hub. But what you're seeing in the United Kingdom, including what my prime minister refers to as the leveling up agenda, we want to take that financial power and wealth that exists around London and the southeast of the United Kingdom and ensure that there are similar opportunities for the people of Wales, the people for North England, the people for Scotland. So, so that's what excites me. And when I come to Tennessee, I speak to leading politicians here and uh, the, the Economic Development Commissioner, uh, and they're talking about that the United Kingdom is still a priority for them, but they're also looking outside of London because they're seeing these developments as the UK transforms our economy into this value-add economy. They're seeing the opportunity of supply chains. They're seeing the opportunity of, as the world adapts to the recovery from COVID, where people want to produce things more locally, that supply chains and where you source goods from are vitally important. So that provides opportunity. So I think that Tennessee uh, and Nashville, where I'm currently in today, just has that calling card that I'm very much hopeful that when international aviation travel gets back to uh, some sense of normal, a normal approach that, uh, you know, that the British Airways flights from London Heathrow to Nashville, which was hugely successful, will start. I know BA would like to have it back in place, but they're waiting to see what happens with international travel restrictions. So there's so much vitality and in a sense, the virtual and remote world that we've all been living with, the Zooms, the Teams, have provided an opportunity for conversations, for people to research opportunities. But it's only really when the CEOs and the chief operating officers can go look, feel, smell and touch mm-hmm. an area or a district that you really get that pent-up demand release. So I see a lot of pent-up demand. Our economy is doing well, from what I was hearing today, the, the economy of the state of Tennessee, despite its challenges, is is doing well. You know, so let's keep working at that. Now, the uh, the BA flights uh, uh, coming back in that that will depend in large part on visa restrictions, mm. and that's been an issue uh, lately with the e- with the EU uh, reciprocal restrictions on travel of Americans to uh, European Union nations. What's what's your commentary on? on the, f- the freedom of travel as you know, we try to get out of the stranglehold of the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, it's not in the position we would like it to be. You know, uh, I've just gone through my fourth hurricane season in the United States, and the first two hurricane seasons we were run off our feet because uh, the hurricanes were approaching South Carolina, North Carolina, Georgia, Tennessee, Alabama, Mississippi, and uh, we have a big resident British community, you know, that lives and sure. works in the United States. Right. But traditionally, we have hundreds of thousands of tourists. So that means when a hurricane comes, we have to provide potential support to these tourists. Since COVID struck, the number of tourists has been a handful. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that 
that to me is great from a hurricane handling perspective <laughs> because you know we don't have to go into crisis mode as much but you think of those families that are separated at the moment those boyfriends and girlfriends that haven't been able to see each other those businesses who haven't been able to attend that conference the situation regarding travel to the united kingdom is different from the other way around at the moment there is no restriction on an american citizen who wants to go and travel to the, the United Kingdom, all they have to do at this moment in time is take a PCR test, which many people have experience of, within 72 hours of departure, and then a test on arrival within the first 40 hours. There's no longer any self-isolation that was removed. The situation for British people without a certain category of visa coming into the United States is tough because they're not allowed to come in for tourism or business purposes unless they have been outside of the United Kingdom or the EU for 15 days. So that's affecting our business traffic, it's affecting our tourism traffic. It, it's, uh, it's an order that uh, was put in quite quickly after COVID broke. So we are working with the US government to look to see how can we move on from the current situation into one in the future. I get it. People are concerned about the spread of the virus. Vaccination rates in the United States in some areas are quite low. In the United in, Kingdom. In your region. Yeah, in my region, they're quite low. So I can understand the Delta variant plus the low levels of vaccinations that people are thinking at this moment in time. The United States as a country is the size of a continent. So there's a lot of internal travel. So this is a measure that the administration and others think is important that's fully understandable but we would like to see how it is possible to make progress in this well, area hopefully uh you know we were all very optimistic two months ago and then uh, things shut down again hopefully we'll get past this uh, soon enough and people will be free to travel uh, once again any last comments in the, on our business conversation uh, tips or advice or uh, direction that you would uh, share with uh, business people about uh, sectors that they might look into to develop business relationships? Any any new uh, developments that they might be aware of? No, I, I mean, I think that I touched on it earlier. The United Kingdom, we are transforming our economy. So uh, across uh, the UK, England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, we're becoming very strong in cyber security. We're deepening our strength in financial services. We're doing better on advanced manufacturing. We're doing better in that sense of UK universities such as Cambridge, Oxford, Sheffield, Glasgow have always been great at inventing things. British people have this, but we've been less good at commercialising. I've heard about the Scottish uh, having yeah. a good hand in that. Penicillin, Sir Alexander Fleming, for example, uh, John Logie Baird, Alexander Graham Bell, I could Robert go on. Robert Fulton? Robert Fulton, we could go on here. Uh, and those scientists and inventors are still in the United Kingdom. And what we haven't been as good at is taking that university research and commercializing it. Uh, so we're spending a lot of supporting startups, supporting tech companies, supporting companies, I mentioned it earlier, that are looking to make that transition from fossil fuels into decarbonized future, so electricity, so battery capability. And one of the areas, if you look at uh, the state of Tennessee, you know, or other states within the Southeast, you are really the foreign direct investment capital of automotive production in the United States. So the opportunity for all of the states, particularly Tennessee, to say, 
there is going to be a fundamental shift away from the internal combustion engine to electric batteries. How can we ensure that we remain at the forefront of that? And the noises I've been hearing to, today from uh, those I've been speaking with really give me the impression that people are seized of this opportunity, that they understand it can bring jobs, it can bring opportunities. And we're at that same point in the United Kingdom. We're trying to develop those opportunities for our people because we really think that leaning into what we call a green recovery can bring up to 250,000 highly skilled jobs to the United Kingdom. Uh, and that space is going to be super competitive you know, with other countries such as China investing a lot of money in this technology of the future. And we really need to be at the forefront of that too. And we're better to collaborate than with uh, our partners in the United States. Lots of exciting things. Let's turn to uh, a, a status uh, check, uh, uh, how things are going in the Brexit aftermath, now that uh, there's been a little time for people to figure out what the ramifications are. Uh, if, if you could uh, just share with uh, with our audience what has been happening with Brexit. We've heard some reports of uh, customs delays and shortages, um, but uh, you know we, we are mindful that you only hear the bad news. So if you could yeah. uh, share with us your assessment of what's been happening with the Brexit aftermath. Well, I think when we last spoke, Patrick, uh, all I talked about was negotiations and the UK was negotiating with the European Union about the terms of our departure. So that was a couple of years ago. Uh, we have now left legally, uh, institutionally, politically, culturally. Uh, we've managed to negotiate a free trade agreement with the European Union and the United Kingdom, which is focused on goods. Uh, so there are no tariffs or quotas on any products that flow from the United Kingdom into the European Union. The area of uh, uh, contention at this moment still revolves around the so-called Northern Ireland Protocol, because uh, Northern Ireland is a territorial integral part of the United Kingdom, but it does share a land border with uh, the European Union and the Republic of Ireland. So we had to negotiate a set of arrangements which would allow uh, products, goods particularly, that were produced in Northern Ireland to still have access to the rest of the European Union and avoid border checks between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. A big part of that was a security and prosperity set of objectives because no one wanted to go back to a time where the border between Ireland and Northern Ireland was contentious and everybody in the United States can remember those graphic images of uh, things that happened in, on the island of Ireland. So we put in place a Northern Ireland protocol, which for the purposes of trades of goods produced in Northern Ireland, uh, those would be considered as part of the single market of the European Union. Uh, and that there would be additional checks put on products that emanated from the mainland of Great Britain that was shipped into uh, uh, Northern Ireland. But obviously the European Union are concerned because they have a series of standards and checks that are required on all goods, particularly uh, uh, livestock and other uh, food products, which have to be undertaken at the border of the European Union. So we've created this protocol to try and 
allow those checks to be undertaken as these goods leave Great Britain that are going to Northern Ireland, but the bureaucracy around it was quite slow and quite painstaking. And there was obviously countries were also dealing with COVID uh, and restrictions True. around travel. So COVID and the first months of the Brexit implementation coincided in many larger respects. So at this moment in time, we, the United Kingdom, have extended the grace period before we have to conduct all of these checks because there was that increase of bureaucracy was proving very unpopular on the streets of Northern Ireland and with politicians such as the Northern Ireland executive. Uh, products that had been coming for generations without any checks were suddenly being slowed. Uh, so we have entered into a desire for negotiations with the European Union to try and uh, ensure that the implementation of that protocol works for everybody on the island of Ireland, uh, for those people of Northern Ireland, but also importantly has their support of the politicians within Northern Ireland. So that's what we're working towards. Uh, we're trying to avoid legal action in both directions, so we're talking, and that's the best place to be that we're talking. So the people who had an apocalyptic view of what would happen after Brexit. It hasn't been proven right because our trade with the European Union is standing up well. There's just this tension around the fact that we're trying to work a way forward that protects Northern Ireland's territorial integral part of the United Kingdom while allowing its businesses and people to have this access to the European Union single market. It's not straightforward. It was the most difficult thing to resolve in the negotiations, and we're still working hard to actually put it into practice. Tough diplomacy. I'm not directly involved in that, but uh, uh, in the sort of day-to-day -day diplomacy, but there are many people, quite rightly, in the United States that are very interested in the future prosperity of Northern Ireland, and all I can do is to, uh, confirm that the British government is full square behind that we want Northern Ireland to be a safe, prosperous, secure uh, part of the United Kingdom. Let's turn to uh, national security and uh, defense issues. Uh, we've uh, seen in the news this week a, a landmark agreement between Australia, the United States. Uh, well, I guess they've, they've put it in order. Uh, AUKUS, uh, -A Australia, United Kingdom, US uh, partnership uh, between among the, those nations, and uh, this is, uh, without saying those words, uh, apparently in response to uh, China. Uh, we've, we've seen an alliance uh, between the United States, Australia, India, and Japan, the Quad, and it, it looks like uh, the United States is building partnerships in response to the Indo-Pacific challenges. I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at, at that. Can you comment on, on this agreement and, and what it means for the United Kingdom to be looking at Indo-Pacific issues? But before, uh, before commenting on the specific agreement, I, it's perhaps helpful for the audience just to, to step back. And uh, when the United Kingdom was a member of the European Union, we were uh, associated and tied into a common foreign and security policy. Uh, since we've left the European Union, 
we see ourselves uh, as having uh, what we call a global Britain role, where well, the United Kingdom has to be a force for good around the world. Uh, as part of uh, our decision to leave the European Union, we wanted to uh, build up the sovereignty of Parliament, the sovereignty of uh, our politicians to make decisions on issues of critical importance around the world, including our foreign's foreign uh, policy and defence policy. So we now have that ability to take these unilateral steps and to join uh, uh, the pact that you mentioned between uh, the United Kingdom, Australia and the United States from a defence security perspective. But this is at the heart of what we are calling our uh, Indo-Pacific tilt you know, so the United Kingdom wants to play its role in uh, the prosperity of that part of the world. We see opportunity for British exporters, British business, but we also want to play our part in the, the stability of that region. We want to ensure the good governance of the region. We want to ensure the economic opportunity. So as part of our uh, integrated review of our foreign defence and diplomacy development, sorry, uh, policies, we have prioritised that the United Kingdom is going to be more active in the Indo-Pacific area. We call it an Indo-Pacific tilt, so a realignment of our resources towards that. So it's a, it's a geographical area and region that's vital in terms of our prosperity and future security. So it would only seem natural at this moment in time that if we are looking at uh, how do we ensure that the UK is a force for good, they were looking for similar like-minded partners who are also concerned about developments in the region, who have that ability to have deployable forces, to have that ability to make a contribution to global security, and to ensure that uh, we are putting in place arrangements that allow us to do this collaboratively, collegiately, and we have those arrangements in, in place at this moment in time. So I think there's there's an aspect of our decision to leave the European Union removes that requirement always to, to move in lockstep with the European Union and their decision-making processes and our politicians, our ministers, our prime minister, to take that view that you cannot say that you want to tilt or divert resources towards that region but only focus on prosperity you also have to think of what is that wider contribution we can make with like-minded partners to ensure the security and stability of that region as well well and as part of the indo-pacific uh, strategy we've seen the deployment of the uh, carrier strike group 21 uh, led by the brand new full deck aircraft carrier mm. her majesty's ship queen elizabeth um, and, and we'll mention that deployed aboard uh, the Queen Elizabeth is a squadron of U.S. Mm. Marine F-35 Lightning aircraft and escorted by a U.S. Navy destroyer. So uh, a, a couple of symbolic uh, moves here in, in the maneuver. One is uh, the bilateral relationship mm. between the U.S. and the U.K., but also deploying such a, a powerful task force to the South China Sea and, and the Western Pacific and operating in the across the Mediterranean and the Indian Ocean on, on the uh, voyage over. Uh, give us a sense of uh, what, what, do, uh, uh, what do people in the UK think when they see such a, such a change in 
forward deployments and reaching around the world national pride concern we, about the budget what's what's the reaction so, so, so Patrick we've always been a bit of a naval nation you know for, oh, to be sure for hundreds of years uh, I've, I've had a pint with British sailors in, in the numerous points yeah what, 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 what we have now are shiny new aircraft carriers that allow us to beautiful ship project you know further away as part of a carrier strike group uh, but the United Kingdom has played its part in uh, operations in the South China Sea and all sorts of parts of the world uh, well before we had the Queen Elizabeth II which is a, a master of technology it's a, or a mistress of technology I suppose <laughs> uh, and uh, that, that sense of projection but that's also a bit of our global Britain this is uh, us showing that uh, yes we want to be active economically but we also want to be active in that security Side of, side of things. I, I'm sure you know, but the audience might not know, but quite a lot of the testing and the trialling of that vessel was carried out in US waters, where the, the aircraft that you mentioned were, were tested there. You know, So there's a big connection already with the United States for uh, the Queen Elizabeth II, and uh, I hope that continues. We have numerous ships visits here. We do numerous joint exercises together. And, you know, the United Kingdom... Uh, has an ability to project not only our defence assets but our diplomatic assets and our development assets around the world. Yes, and you know, I I saw with pride uh, some correspondence from uh, the High Commissioner in Singapore when the Carrier Strike Group uh, was there recently in the last uh, couple of months. That this gives you a platform that that shows your defence capabilities, but it also shows that commitment you're and contribution you're able to make globally. You know, that the United Kingdom is not going to be an insular nation, that we've always been an extrovert, externally facing nation, that we've always wanted to do good in the world, that we do want to support an international rules-based order, that we do want to uh, champion good governance, that we do want to champion democracy, but we'll do it in a way that uh, we have those assets and those tools at our disposal that allow us to project. Project in the terms of positioning your country, but also let's not forget that these aircraft carriers are not there as just projection vehicles. They're there to protect the people of the United Kingdom. And we think that the United Kingdom is a safer place if we still remain active globally and that we still have globally deployable forces so that we can stand up a whole series of operations no matter where those threats emanate from. So a certain mixture of pride uh, in that capability, but would not want to underestimate that contribution that we've made over the last 100, 200, 300 years to that sense of global peace uh, through whatever assets we have at our disposal, being ready to use them at the right time. Let's talk about the sailing of the ship through the South China Sea and the reaction from China uh, as a sort of backdrop to the question, where does uh, the, the Global Britain strategy see China as uh, a reason for exerting power in the, in the Indo-Pacific region, the threat from China? The United States is actively uh, repositioning forces from the Atlantic to the Pacific, looking at China as uh, 
the new uh, great power challenge. Uh, how does Britain view that challenge? I think the first thing I would say is that we see it as a challenge. We see aspects of it as a threat, but we also see it as an opportunity. And I think for the United Kingdom government, uh, we want to foster engagement, direct engagement, robust engagement. Uh, we want to ensure that our economy, particularly those pieces of critical national infrastructure, uh, are protected from any uh, sense that uh, they might be exploited or threatened, no matter where that threat comes from. So I think we're looking at foreign direct investment much more strategically to ensure that uh, in those critical bits of infrastructure across various sectors that there's enough UK PLC you know, protections that exist around us. But we also see China as a market, a market for our products. But we also understand that the Chinese, you talk about them as a great power, uh, they're a great power economically. They're a great power, obviously, from a defense uh, perspective. And they're very active for, around the world. But we think that we need to keep engaging. We need to keep that engagement fresh. We need to keep it recent. We need to keep it current. Because I think over many, many decades, once, once you cut yourself off from dialogue, then people don't understand each other's perspective. So challenge, threat, but also opportunity. Uh, but we're not going into this with rose-tinted spectacles on. We do know that uh, uh, China itself may not always share our objectives, but that we would hope that our engagement can help ensure that those objectives uh, remain broadly aligned in certain areas. It's tough, but the other thing I would say about China is when you talk about the state of Tennessee, when I talk about the sense that you have a great opportunity here in that transition to electric vehicles that I mentioned earlier. The Chinese are investing a lot of money in this technology now uh, because they are trying to position themselves as you know, the battery technology capital of the future, uh, the hydrogen fuel technology capital of the future. You know, so it's a competitive world out there, but sometimes you need to engage with your big competitor to understand what their capabilities are so that you can actually uh, engage and show relevance and that you're able to compete with them uh, uh, economically and from other perspectives as well. While we're talking about China, uh, a question about Hong Kong. It was a British uh, mm. crown colony until 1997. It lived under uh, one country, uh, two systems, until last year when it was a new security law and things uh, in terms of crackdowns, loss of freedom. Yeah. What's what's the reaction among uh, British to uh, that development? Yeah, we feel that we have a duty to ensure that post-1997, when the transition happened, that we hold China to account. Which uh, runs through for 50 years to For 40, 50 years, uh, you know, and beyond, and beyond 2047. I was posted in China in 1989-1990 when they were negotiating uh, with the start of negotiations. It was a long process before the handover and it was a very detailed process. It was a very difficult process. Uh, we will continue to ensure that we do what we can to support the people of Hong Kong and uh, 
we've announced some quite innovative approaches on immigration uh, for people who want to, to move to the United Kingdom if they are concerned with sizable numbers of people involved. So the United Kingdom has not walked away from our duty of care, our sense of responsibility, our sense of liability that uh, we need to ensure that uh, when China does something which, which goes against uh, that agreement that we hold them to account. Uh, it's difficult, it's not, it's not a straightforward process at all because you know we we're using diplomatic means uh, and we're looking to support those democratic forces that exist in Hong Kong uh, and we're looking to be active but we need to work obviously with other partners too uh, so not straightforward but we will continue not only to raise Hong Kong but to raise the the, the plight of the Uyghurs to raise uh, the plight of other minorities to to so that uh, China understands that the British view that uh, uh, that it needs to address certain practices and policies at this moment in time. Well, thank you for your your time today. Uh, we have covered the globe. I'm Sorry. just could I could I just say one other thing? I'm also delighted to be in uh, Nashville to participate in the Pride Parade, uh, which is celebrating. Uh, LGBTQ plus uh, rights. Uh, we think it's important to to cherish, support all of these these movements. Uh, th those fundamental rights are, are changing at this moment in time, and uh, the British government sees uh, LGBTQ plus as one of the intrinsic sets of values that we should all be supporting. So to to attend the Nashville Pride Parade on Saturday. Uh, is a Saturday the 18th of September so this podcast may already have come out but I think it's very fitting that the British government is here supporting the people of Nashville as they they look to celebrate those rights at a time when you know, uh, I think that people are looking for governments to be as forward-looking and forward-leaning as they can possibly be at this moment in time well, sorry to cut across you Patrick <laughs> Thank you for that. I was going to uh, uh, ask you a, a, to comment on that at, at the end here as, as well as the question, uh, what is your favorite thing to do in Nashville? You've been here a few times. I, I've been here many times. Uh, my least favorite thing to do in Nashville is to tell my colleague on my first ever visit here that the meeting place is only 15 minutes away <laughs> at the height of the summer uh, and then turn up at my first meeting as if I just come from a swimming pool. Uh, my favourite thing to do, I love the vitality. I've done some really fun things here. I was fortunate enough, and I think I may have seen you at the time, Patrick, to attend the English female ladies soccer match versus the United States in February 2019, I think it was. It was a 2-2 draw. There were 30,000 people in the, the large Tennessee Titans stadium. It was absolutely freezing, but that sense of uh, love of soccer, love of female soccer, and the young people in the stands and in the audience just filled me that this again is another area, a game created, a beautiful game created in the United Kingdom called football could make its transatlantic journey 
and that we were playing competitive fixtures, but also celebrating that sense of female empowerment as we did it. So that was probably my favorite thing I've done here. That was a terrific event, and uh, the reception at uh, the Fleet Street uh, pub on, on Printer's Alley was, was a wonderful event. Um, yes, Nashville is definitely becoming a, a soccer city. Mm. Uh, I don't think we'll get around to cricket, though. We're, we're still having trouble with Who will? <laughs> Sorry, I'm Scottish for all those cricket <laughs> lovers out there. Okay, well, um, we have been talking with uh, Andrew Staunton, who is Her Majesty's Consul General in Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, he is responsible for the states of Georgia, Tennessee, North Carolina, South Carolina, Mississippi, and Alabama, uh, leading uh, trade and investment, uh, the relationship between the United States and the UK, consular relations, and probably a whole lot more. Consul General, uh, thank you again so much for being with us today. It's always a pleasure, Patrick, and as I said at the beginning, uh, continued success for the World Affairs Council. Really enjoy engaging with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is Global Tennessee. Uh, you can uh, find a number of Global Tennessee uh, podcasts on soundcloud.com slash TNWAC. Please also take a look at our website, tnwac.org, to become a member or to make a donation so we can keep the lights on. Uh, that's it for Global Tennessee. I'm Patrick Ryan, President of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. Thank you very much.